Welcome to Words of Grace, radio ministry of Elder Ben Winslet, pastor of the Flint River Primitive Baptist Church near Huntsville, Alabama. We invite you to stay tuned to today's broadcast. Our broadcast today is entitled Remitting Sin. Lately at Flint River Primitive Baptist Church, in our Sunday morning time together, we've been engaging in a study on the time period between the resurrection and ascension of Christ. This actually follows after a four-week study on the time leading up to the crucifixion of Christ from the four Gospels. So over the past few weeks, we've spent a tremendous amount of our time together studying the time period around the crucifixion. This has been a very beneficial study. It's been a very enjoyable study, and you can go to our church Facebook page and watch any of those sermons. As we were studying the post-resurrection accounts and the various times that Jesus revealed himself to his disciples, we came across a statement in John's Gospel that could be rather confusing to those of us from a grace perspective. And this statement is found in John chapter 20 and verse 23. John 20, 23 says, and this is Christ speaking, "...whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them, and whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained." Now, for obvious reasons, this is a passage of Scripture that you and I, as non-salvation-by-works-believing people, people who believe in salvation by grace, might stumble over. We might wonder, what in the world is this meaning? What is the meaning of this statement? And that's what we're going to consider on the broadcast today. I want to spend just a moment of time and get us to this portion of the book of John and also compare it with other statements and understanding at what point of his ministry here in the world, his life in the world, this statement was made. What had happened here? Jesus has revealed himself to the disciples. This is after the crucifixion. It's after his death. It's after the resurrection, and this is at the moment when he reveals himself to all of the apostles and many of the sisters there in Jerusalem, locked in a room for fear of the Jews because they were afraid that they would suffer the same fate as Jesus for being obedient to him and allegiant to him. For being believers, they thought that they were going to suffer for their faith in Christ. Now, as you know, and I hope you heard perhaps emphasized over the course of the Easter season that we had last month, the sisters come to anoint the body of Christ on the first day of the week, early in the morning. They come to anoint him because there was an opportunity to anoint him from his crucifixion until that moment. And so when daylight comes, they come to anoint him as early as they can. But as you know, and praise God, Jesus is risen from the dead. These women go back to the apostles, and they tell them that, but their words seemed to the apostles to be as but idle tales. But Peter and John, they run to the empty tomb to see if these things are so. These women had been told by angels that Jesus is not there. They seek the living among the dead. Jesus is no longer in the tomb. So Peter and John come back, and they find that same scene that the sisters had witnessed and attested to. As they return to the rest of the apostles, Mary Magdalene stays behind, and Jesus actually reveals himself to her. He manifests himself to her, telling her that she is alive and telling her to return to the others and tell them that same information. 
Mary Magdalene does this, and at some point after she arrives back with the disciples, we have the two on the road to Emmaus that we shared a portion of Scripture about last week on the radio broadcast. These men, walking to Emmaus, see the risen Christ. He manifests himself to them. He walks with them. He preaches to them. He begins to eat with them. And then as he opens their eyes to his identity, he simply vanishes. He disappears from their midst. And they run back to Jerusalem, and they tell the rest of the disciples that Jesus is risen indeed. And the intended meaning behind that word indeed is that he really has risen again. As the sisters have said, as the angels have said, so we say that Jesus is risen indeed. It's not a story. It's not just well-wishing. But Jesus is actually alive. He walked with us the entire way to Emmaus. He preached unto us. He ate with us. He revealed himself to us. And then he disappeared, but he is risen indeed. We know he's alive because we have seen him. Now, while these men relay this information to the apostles, this is recorded in Luke chapter 24 and also in John chapter 20, Jesus suddenly appears in the midst of them. Luke twenty four thirty six as they thus spake, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said unto them, Peace be unto you. But they were terrified and affrighted, supposing that they had seen a spirit. To put it in our modern vernacular, they thought they'd seen a ghost when Jesus stands before them. They were terrified, and he tells them, Look at my hands. Look at my hands and my feet. Feel that I have flesh and bone. I'm not a spirit, and I'm not someone else. It's really me. Look at the print in my hands. He shows them his hands and his feet, and then he asks them something to eat. And while he eats in front of them, Jesus begins to give them instruction. Now, post-resurrection accounts usually include some sort of an instruction, and in all likelihood, this could have happened on multiple occasions, to go and to preach the Word. And if you wonder, what is it that Christians are to be doing in today's time? It's simply to be preaching the Word. And we preach all kinds of things that are not the Word, and we obsess over all kinds of things other than Christ. But we're to be people of the Word. We're to be assembled in churches. The information we're concerned with is to be the gospel. And what we're to be doing until the end of the world is preaching Christ, making disciples, baptizing people, and continuing to instruct them in all things that he has commanded us. And we find various renditions of that commandment throughout these post-resurrection accounts that we find in the four Gospels. To Peter, Jesus is very graphic and says, If you love me, you go preach to my children. You feed my sheep and you feed my lambs. To all of them in Matthew chapter 28, before he ascends to glory, he tells them to go and to teach and to baptize and to teach. The church is to be doing that, particularly the gospel ministers from the time of Christ even until today. But as Jesus is before them here in this room, and he would be there with them some 40 days, this would be the first time he reveals himself to all of them together. And there would be other times that Jesus would appear before them, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, there were over 500 people who had seen the risen Christ. At this occasion, Jesus tells them that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem, and ye are witnesses of these things. But as we read in the book of John, as he appears in this locked room where the disciples hid for fear of of persecution, 
As he stands before them, he says, Peace be unto you, as my Father hath sent me, even so I send you. And then in verse 23, Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them, and whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. That's the context of this statement. And as you know, he sends them out, commissions these 11 men to go and to preach the gospel to every creature, to baptize those that have been made disciples, and they're going to be witnesses of him as they preach his death, burial, and resurrection, the forgiveness of sins, and also remission of sins. As they preach that, they're going to be witnesses who testify, first at Jerusalem, then in all Judea, then in Samaria, and even unto the uttermost parts of the world. And here we are in the United States of America, in the literal uttermost part of the earth from the Middle East, believing in Christ, preaching the gospel, serving him, worshiping him in our churches. That's Acts chapter 1 that uses that language. And so this is one of these commission-type passages or commands when Jesus instructs his disciples, his apostles, to go out and to preach. So what does this statement mean? Can you and I literally remit sin in the sense that we can remove another person's sins. Now, if you're a Baptist such as I am, immediately the word that should come into your mind is, no, we can't take away another person's sins. But there are orders of faith in the world that teach that we can remove someone's sinfulness, either by literally washing them in baptism or requiring them to make confession for their sins and pronouncing forgiveness to them. Is this a passage that would support such? Well, in the time that we have remaining on today's broadcast, we want to consider that. Can we remit people's sins in the sense that we take them away? Now, these are the words of Christ, and so they're important. We don't simply read over them. We don't avoid them. But we do need to rightly apply them and rightly divide the word of truth. And I believe as we come to the close of today's broadcast, we'll see what this passage is actually saying to them, the sense in which we can remit sin after considering some ways that we cannot remit sins. First of all, and there are three points in specific that I want to present to you today, only Jesus can remove sin in God's sight. In 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5, we read, For there is one God, and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. The only mediator between God and men is Christ. Christ is our mediator. He sits on the right hand of the Father making intercession for us. Jesus is what stands between us and God's wrath. One of the titles concerning Christ in the New Testament is that he is our propitiation. He's the propitiation for sins. And Sometimes that word propitiation translates from a word that also means mercy seat. If you look back to the Old Testament, on top of the Ark of the Covenant is the mercy seat. Why would Jesus be our mercy seat? Well, you see, in the holiest of holies is the Ark of the Covenant. Within the Ark is the broken law, the law that we had all broken, the Ten Commandments written of Moses, given to Moses by God himself. Inside that Ark are the Ten Commandments. On top of that Ark is the mercy seat with the cherubim with outstretched arms. 
above that mercy seat, God himself, in the form of a pillar of a cloud, would appear, and it would be so overwhelming at times, the priests couldn't stand to minister about their duties because of the presence of God being so rich in the holiest of holies. But that's a beautiful picture of Christ as he is our mercy seat. What is between God's personal presence and the law that we have broken? Well, it's the mercy seat. If you look vertically from that perspective, you have God's presence, then the mercy seat, then the broken law. The law that we broke, what stands between us and a holy God that is offended at sin is Christ. He's our propitiation. He is our mercy seat. There's some great preaching that could be done from that passage and from that concept in Scripture. Only Jesus can be our mediator. Only Jesus can take away sins. And praise God, he took away the sins of his people. He shall save his people from their sins. In the book of Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, we read, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved than the name Jesus Christ. Jesus is our only salvation. He's our only hope of salvation. In fact, in the book of John chapter 14 and verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. In John 6, Jesus says, No man comes to him except the Father which has sent him draw them, and he shall raise them up again at the last day. There's a complete harmony and unity between the Father and the Son in the purpose of salvation. No one comes to the Son, but that they're drawn by the Father, and no man can come to the Father except through the Son. So if Christ is the only mediator, that means he's the only person that can stand between us and God. If Christ is our propitiation and Christ alone, our mercy seat, the only thing separating our sinful condition with the holiness of God, the mercy seat, the propitiation, Christ Jesus. If Jesus is the only one under heaven who can save us, according to Acts 4.12, and Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, the only way to the Father, then friends, it's rather simple then. You and I cannot take away the sins of other people. We can't take their sin on ourselves because we are sinners. We are impotent to deliver them from their fallen state. We can't even give them life when they are dead in trespasses and in sins any more than we could give a physical corpse life as it lays there dead on the ground. We simply lack the ability to do that. A word that a lot of old articles of faith and statements of faith use is the word impotent, which means powerless. God is omnipotent. He's omnipotent or powerful, all-powerful, omnipotent. You and I are impotent, no power. We have no power to affect the sinful condition or the dead condition in sin of those who are around us. So the first point that I want to give is that only Jesus can remove sin in God's sight. You and I do not have that ability. No one can take away sins but Christ. Point number two, and as we've already made mention to, this statement correlates with Jesus' commands to go and evangelize, to teach, to baptize, and to teach. 
Now, as we go and as we evangelize, the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 2 makes an interesting statement, and this is one of my favorite passages, not my favorite, but one of my favorite passages in Scripture. We use this recently as we talked about two types of people, those who are quickened and those who are not, those who have spiritual life and those who do not. God makes manifest the savor of his knowledge by us in every place. For we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ in them that are saved and in them that are perish. To the one, to those that perish, we are the savor of death unto death. To a person who is dead in trespasses and in sins, we smell like death. You couldn't give a stronger statement regarding the reaction of the unregenerate to the gospel of Christ than that statement. To the dead, we are the savor of death. And to the other, the savor of life unto life. To a person that is born of the Spirit of God, we smell like life because we smell like Jesus, as it were, in a metaphor as we talk about him and we love him and we worship him and we serve him as his disciples. But here in 2 Corinthians 2, very plainly we read that to a natural man, well, what we teach is foolishness to them that perish, the word of God is foolishness, as 1 Corinthians chapter 1 would say. And to the person that is saved, well, we smell as life unto life. To the living in Christ, we have the savor of life about us. Now, why would I use this passage as we talk about this statement about remitting sins in the book of John chapter 20 and verse 23? To one type of person, we are the savor of death unto death, To another type of person, we are the savor of life unto life. This springboards us into the actual intended meaning of this passage, John chapter 20 and verse 23. Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them, and whoso sins ye retain, they are retained. Since this happened, this occurred at the same event that we read of in Luke chapter 24, another way of saying what Jesus is saying to them is found in Luke 24 and verse 47, we've already read this, that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And so, whoso sins ye remit, they are remitted. Whoso sins ye retain, they are retained, is synonymous with that statement, because these are two different variations of the same overall message that Jesus preached to them. Many times the sermons that we read in Scripture are not given to us as complete transcripts. That's not why God has done that. And so we find variations of the same statements given in these various gospel accounts. They don't contradict one another. Rather, they complement one another. And John here says, as he gives us the same statement that is found in Luke 24, 47, Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them, and whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. Well, all right, Pastor, what does this statement mean? What is Jesus saying to the disciples here in this passage? And what we're going to do is give you the brief explanation of what Jesus is saying. Then we're going to look at several different statements, different commentaries by other preachers to show you that this isn't the words of some wild-eye, hard-shell, primitive Baptist preacher on the radio who's simply making this up and pulling this out of thin air, but this is actually how people interpret the passage who have studied it out. In a nutshell, this statement, whosoever sins you remit, they are remitted, and whosoever sins you retain, they are retained, this regards the assurance of salvation and not the obtaining of salvation. So, remitting sin or not remitting sin here, has reference to assurance 
not the obtaining of the salvation itself. Now, if you've listened to Words of Grace for any period of time, you can probably guess the first resource that I'm going to share with you. This is actually from John Gill's commentary. John Gill was a historic, highly regarded Baptist figure. He wrote a commentary, the first actual Baptist commentary on the entire Bible that was ever published. He says this, "...whosoever sins ye remit, God only can forgive sins." That sounds like what we've already said to you today, doesn't it? And Christ, being God, has a power to do so likewise. But he never communicated any such power to his apostles, nor did they ever assume any such power to themselves or pretend to exercise it. It is the mark of Antichrist to attempt anything of the kind who, in doing so, usurps the divine prerogative, places himself in his seat, and shows himself as if he was God. But this is to be understood only in a doctrinal or ministerial way by preaching the full and free remission of sins through the blood of Christ, according to the riches of God's grace, to such as repent of their sins and believe in Christ, declaring that all such persons as do so repent and believe, all their sins are forgiven for Christ's sake and accordingly. Now, Gill would tell you that repentance and belief are evidences of a gracious state. He's not even saying that they are causative or instrumental in remission. What he's saying is, if you're a person who's repented and believed, well, you have this assurance in God's Word that you're a person whose sins are remitted. And conversely, if you're a person that despises Christ, he would say very little of his confidence towards your spiritual state. But notice this all the way back in John Gill's day. This man is teaching basically the same thing that I said, that in a nutshell, this regards the assurance of salvation, not the obtaining of salvation. I'm going to share with you some other commentators, and these are their words. These aren't my words, and I would express a little differently than they would, but these are the words of theologians in church history. In John Trapp's commentary on the New Testament, it says, Man may remit the trespass, but God only the transgression. Howbeit ministers may, and in some cases must declare unto man his righteousness, Job 33 and verse 23, pronounce in Christ's name the truly penitent righteous in God's sight, by Christ's righteousness freely imputed and given unto them, they may also retain by the same authority and bind upon impenitent sinners so continuing their sins to destruction. This we may do as ministers and more we claim not. In other words, Trapp is saying here that we, in a declarative sense, declare unto man his righteousness. I like how he says that this we can do. We can proclaim God's forgiveness upon his people, but no more. I can't cause your sins to be remitted, and I should never take upon myself some sort of authority to specifically tell people, well, you've confessed this sin to me, thy sins be forgiven. That's something that simply men do not have the power to do. In the Geneva Bible footnotes, published in 1599, on this verse, the Geneva commentators say the publishing of the forgiveness of sins by faith in Christ and the setting forth and denouncing the wrath of God in retaining the sins of the unbelievers is the sum of the preaching of the gospel. What did they say? They say, in essence, the same thing that the first two commentaries that I quoted said. Now, would I say it in exactly the same way? No, I wouldn't. It's clear that all three different commentaries are expressing the thought that what we simply do is declare that certain types of people have forgiveness of sins and other types of people do not have forgiveness of sins. Or in other words, to the one type we have the savor of 
life unto life, and another type the savor of death unto death. In other words, as we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 17, to the saved, the gospel is power, but unto them that perish, it's foolishness. That's really saying the same thing in principle. And so summarizing their views again, John Gill says that you remit it in a doctrinal sense. You simply proclaim it and let the chips fall where they may. Trapp says you declare unto a man his righteousness, and the Geneva footnotes say you publish forgiveness. Now, how would I say that? How would I say that? As a declaration, you remit sins. As a declaration, we remit or retain sins as a declaration by way of assurance, generally not even specifically to individuals, by scriptural authority, not personal opinion. In other words, all of the elect will be saved. And if you're a person that loves Jesus, you love him because he first loved you. Conversely, all of the wicked will be judged. The wicked who are dead in their trespasses and in sins, the natural men who do by nature terrible things, whose mouths are open sepulchers, who have no fear of God before their eyes, literally... What this statement is saying is that in our preaching, well, we declare that one type of person is saved and one type of person will be judged. So this statement is saying that preachers proclaim a declaration by way of assurance. It's a form of assuring people, generally and not specifically to individuals. We would talk about people in mass here not individuals, as if we know the condition of another person's heart, by scriptural authority and not personal opinion that certain people are saved and certain people perish. Now, for a practical application, when you read John chapter 3 and verse 16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life, and you believe in Jesus. So you hear that, and you're like, wow, I'm a believer This passage tells me that I'm not going to perish, but I'm going to have everlasting life. What does that make you feel? How do you feel hearing that? Well, I hope you feel comforted. I hope you feel assured. I hope hearing those words from Scripture, not my words, not me making up stuff or giving proclamations on individuals and what I think of their eternal life or offering to them some sort of forgiveness that I can't grant. But when I read Scripture and Scripture says, if you love him, it's because he first loved you and I love him, well, I'm going to be overcome with joy because Christ loves me. If I read John 3.16 as a believer and I I find out that I won't come into condemnation no matter what, but I have everlasting life, I'm going to be comforted. If I read John 5.24, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Well, I'm going to hear that and I'm going to be comforted and I'm going to rejoice or John chapter 6 and verse 40, Everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. As someone who believes. Now, why do I believe? Because I'm born again. Birth predates belief. Belief is of being born again. First John 5, 1, Whosoever believeth is born of God. We believe, we receive Christ, according to John 1, because we were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You believe because you're born again. But when you hear these proclamations given from the Word of God by preachers, it ought to cause you to have comfort. In your mind, your sins are remitted. 
Or to put another way, you have assurance of your salvation when you hear these promises of God from the Word of God. And so, whosoever sins we remit, they are remitted. Whosoever are retained, they are retained. What he means is that we preach that one type of person's sins are taken away, and another type of person is still yet in their sins. And as those whose sins are remitted, those who have forgiveness in Christ, when they hear that word, oh, those sweet promises of Scripture that God has written to them, their hearts are forever comforted, and they can have great hope and great peace, even that passeth all understanding. I hope today's message has been instructive to you, considering a very challenging text. Consider what I say, the Lord give thee understanding. Again, I'm Ben Winslet, thanking you for listening to Words of Grace today, inviting you to tune in again next week at this time. Until then, may the Lord's richest blessings be yours, is my prayer. If you enjoy the messages you hear on Words of Grace, consider this your invitation to visit a Primitive Baptist Church in your community. An online directory is available at MarchToZion.com. Copies of this and other broadcasts are available for download on iTunes and on our website. And finally, Words of Grace is a listener-supported program. To contact us, address your correspondence to Words of Grace Radio, 641 Moontown Road, Brownsboro, Alabama, 35741. Or visit us online at flintriverpbc.org.